0: Hey, if you want to help support the show, head on over to our Patreon. An exclusive reward for our show's patrons is access to our Discord server. Check the link in the description for more info. Welcome everybody back to the Mind Sculptors. I am your host, Callahan, and uh, still with me is uh, my good friends Cobblepot and Ponko, And uh, splitting this one up into a couple because uh, we got through... Six cards uh,
1: in an hour and a half.
0: Yeah, we got through Hull Breacher and uh, Opposition Agent, and I looked at the time on the record and it was 40 minutes. Uh, So... (laughs) I was like, we might need to break this up a little bit. Sure. Um, but, of course, welcome back, you guys. Um, still here. And still, still good to be here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we spent a lot of time talking about partners, and uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this card. I'm really excited about this card. Uh, it is a planeswalker this time that can partner with any partner. Is Jessica Thrice Reborn. Um, It's two colorless in a red, Legendary Planeswalker. Uh, Jessica enters the battlefield with a loyalty counter on it for each time you've cast a commander from the command zone this game. Not specifically her, a commander. Uh, She has two abilities. Uh, One is a zero, Uh, zero, uh, so a, a zero activation. Uh, Choose target creature until your next turn. If that creature would deal combat damage to one of your opponents, it deals triple that damage to that player instead. Then it has a minus X ability, where Jessica deals X damage to each of up to three targets. So there's a lot to unpack here. My first favorite thing about this, and before I toss it over to Cobblepot, is going to be the fact that I can go turn 1, Sarah Ascendant, turn 2, Jessica, 0 on the Sarah Ascendant, and deal 18 damage lifelink on turn 2. I think that is fun. I like turning creatures sideways. Um, So I saw this card and I was immediately like, maybe I can build some sort of aggro list with this card. That's probably very... um, very optimistic of me uh, but I'm always trying to find the how can I uh, just throw creatures on the board, turn them sideways and do it well um, so Cobblepot I know you have some thoughts um, what, what what's really going on with this thing
1: so um, I, I think that the first thing that people are drawn to when they see this is the fact that it's, it's an infinite mana outlet so right. if you get infinite red mana, then you can cast it and then do its minus X for however many it's got and bolt people to the face and then recast it and then just continue doing that. So um, you pair it up into whatever color spectrum you you want and either you do some sort of a side loop to, to create your infinite mana or... Um, people who are pairing it up with timna for instance and to and mardu i've seen people using uh, world gorger loops mm-hmm. to go infinite mana um you know the the way to get to infinite mana it varies from from list to list but in every case it's they want to get to infinite mana so they're going to use jessica as their finisher and um i mean like you were just saying with your sarah ascendant this is really good uh for you know mardu turbo nas
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because having solvency of life is key for you know successful uh, NAS games so if if you can have your you know your Timna come down and then swing at somebody and you can you know gain six life off of that that is you know maybe you know you know five plus more cards that you get to see when you resolve your Nas. so uh, this also, like we you know have been saying this fits well with Silas, so <laughs> um for the people who want to just take your your standard you know Grixis approach to this and have a an infinite Mana outlet in in their in their command zone to be able to take advantage of it, um, I haven't looked at this card a lot just because i've my focus has been on some of the maybe the spicier cards that mm-hmm. we've already been kind of talking about,
0: but I know that there are people who are working on this. Uh, in different ways. Me. (laughs) I am people. Um, One of the cards that I think pairs really well with this um, and is worth exploring to some extent, especially if you're going to be in some sort of Grixis pairing, and it might not be the most optimal play, but I think it has some value um, if you get into grindy uh, sort of situations, is Chandra Acolyte of Flame. Um. Because, you know, her zero not only puts a counter on each red planeswalker that you have, but her minus also lets you cast an instant or sorcery with CMC three or less out of your graveyard. Um, So it's a little bit of a versatile card that can let you use Jessica to maybe pick off dorks or something like that. Um, Be a little bit more grindy. Um, and, And that might not be something you put into a stock list. Uh, but that certainly is something where I could see an argument being made for why you would want to play that in a particular meta uh, that is very dork-heavy.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think um, something that gets overlooked a little bit because people uh, automatically just think of the combo potential of the card is the fact that you can just play this as a three-mana way to essentially like set people way back on tempo. You get this down on turn two against, like, three green decks that led with turn one mana dork, and you just say, okay, well, three mana, I will essentially, like, triple time walk. Um, that's pretty strong. Um, right. So And only like, to
0: minus one at two.
2: Right. So, I, the thing is, at that point, probably it's coming down with one loyalty if it's, like, a, on a turn two. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. who knows? You know, you could have cast your Tim right, or whatever beforehand. Um but yeah, I mean, there's like sort of like fair applications of this card that are incredibly powerful. You know, you even pointed out the, the combat damage aspect, uh, it's a, an incredibly powerful card just in terms of its abilities. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it is that I really appreciate the design of this card. Uh, the fact that it's not impossible, but like very hard to and not incredibly profitable to play this in any other format that's not commander. Because the vast majority of the time, if you're not playing commander, there's no way to play this with without it coming into play and then leaving play right away. Right. Right. Um, so you know State that triple abilities, man. That that triple <laughs> combat damage ability that it has would be a menace in other formats. Um, and you know, for us, it's powerful, but it's not game bro- game breaking because of our 40 starting life total.
0: And I think one of the things I like before we move on to the next card, which is, again, another partner, um, is I really like bringing in Planeswalkers as not only your commander, uh, but also to be in the partner slot, uh, because it really opens up different avenues for deck design, uh, because especially with these planeswalkers in your command zone like a, i mean a great example is is i'm kind of thinking around the way i build teferi for instance right a little bit differently than i would think about or even jace uh, a little bit differently than i would think about playing like brawl or other things in those colors um just because of the abilities that are attached to it um so with this the type of permanent it is i think first of all it's very flavorful second of all Um, it just adds a lot of different avenues and a lot of different ideas for play design. I just love the design of this card up and down. Um, Going into the next uh, piece here, the next partner, we've talked about so many of them over the course of this night, Uh, but the next one is one that I have brought up a couple of times, one that I'm very excited about personally is Malcolm Kenai Navigator. We've got another can cast it off of a Jeweled Lotus card. Uh, two colorless and a blue. Legendary Siren Pirate, it's a 2-2. Has flying, and whenever one or more pirates you control deals damage to your opponents, you create a treasure token for each opponent dealt damage. Um, so, this is in a way a Timna for treasure. Uh, so instead of drawing cards, you make treasure. Um, there is a lot of different ways you can go with this, uh, but Pongo, there's a two-card combo with this, uh, and everybody's been kind of talking about it, so what's going on with this card?
2: Yeah, so this is a very interesting card. A lot of people are, you know, thinking about it for, uh, you know, Grixis shells or even Teamer shells where, uh, you know, you're still going to have creature tutors to combo with, uh, you know, this particular pirate that we got i think in M20 uh Glinthorn Buccaneer um and basically the idea here is that Glinthorn Buccaneer says um uh whenever you uh discard a card Glinthorn Buccaneer deals one damage to each opponent it also has an activated ability where for one and a red you discard a card to and draw a card so you're essentially card neutral Um, And you can only activate that ability if Glinthorn Buccaneer is attacking. So the card has haste, importantly. uh, And what you can do with this card is, you know, you attack um, with Malcolm and with this. You create treasures and you can use that to pay for the ability. um, At which point, you know, Glinthorn Buccaneer deals damage to each of your opponents. um, And from there, you're making three treasures because... One of your pirates has dealt damage to each of your opponents, and so you can keep doing this, spending two mana each time to discard a card and draw a card, um, dealing one damage because of the discard, making treasures, so netting mana, and, you know, essentially killing your opponents, because you only have to do this 40 or so times. Um, so, yeah, one card combo in Grixis is, uh, something that we haven't really seen all that much of before, um... And, you know, same thing, a little, yeah, same thing, I I guess, in Timur as well. Um, So what that ultimately ends up meaning is that uh, while it's not necessarily going to, like, replace other options in Grixis, uh, you know, just having access to a one-card win condition gives you a reason to play this partner, Malcolm. Um, And, you know, then you're just leaning on red for, obviously, for color identity reasons, for Glintorn Buccaneer. Uh, and then black for tutors uh, and, you know, other options like Adnaws and stuff like that, um, you have this one-card combo potential. Uh, and essentially, yeah, you know, you have the, the typical game plans that will either be in Teamur or Grixis, but you have something that closes the game efficiently and uh, and easily, where whereas those other decks sometimes would struggle at that point.
1: I think it's really interesting that they chose to template this as um, deals the, 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 the same way that, you know, Curiosity and Keen Sense are templated, mm-hmm. where it's looking for damage dealt, not combat combat damage dealt. Right. Um, I, given the trajectory of Wizard's design of late, most of the time, these types of abilities have been on combat damage being dealt. Right. So the fact that this is on damage being dealt is um i mean we love this and (laughs) i i i don't know if this was an intentional choice that they were making because somebody in r&d saw the Glinthorn interaction there or uh, what it was that they were trying to accomplish because it makes me want to look at what other pirates are there that can deal damage outside of the combat step Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: what other ways do we have to exploit
2: those yeah, and the, the curiosity point that you, you br- brought up is a, a very good one because obviously if you're going into Grixis, um, this is a mono-blue commander, so you're going to need Vile Smasher to get that color combination. And Vile Smasher famously already has pretty powerful synergies with uh, those curiosity effects, mm-hmm. um, which also themselves have pretty strong synergy with the Glenhorn Buccaneer um, right. and your commander. So, you know, there there's definitely uh, a lot of elegance to that package if that's the direction you want to take the deck in Uh, alternatively you kind of can just go in more of like a turbo gnaws direction once again and just have access to a one card win condition which I think is you know perfectly powerful and uh, makes the the commander pairing very justifiable among Grixis options
0: Mm -hmm. agreed yeah and and one thing um, that I've also brought up is you can put this with Timna as well Um, and you have a lot of, you have a lot of room to do, as we mentioned before, um, probably better with Sakashima, um, but certainly there is room to explore with Malcolm and sort of a Esper hate bears kind of list. Um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes as far as that goes, as far as that is concerned, but, uh, this is definitely one to keep an eye out on, um... Cobblepot, you kind of have been around with the curiosity control lists, right? Um, could there be an argument to be made for a Malcolm Vile Smasher curiosity control list?
1: Probably, for sure. Um, I mean, just for the same reasons that we are that we've been outlining here the 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 access that the curiosity control lists have been most playing on. Is having uh, a lot of you know red sweeper effects to keep dorks off the table and that kind mm-hmm. of thing, which doesn't uh, it doesn't work too well with Malcolm because Malcolm's a two two, so mm-hmm. that it, it was you know kind of taking advantage of the fact that most of your threats were have had three toughness to be able to survive pyroclasms and so right. on and so forth. So that that there's a tension there, but um, I mean going maybe not necessarily curiosity control, but, you know, more on curiosity combo,
0: right. I,
1: I, I can absolutely see that in, okay. in Grixis, uh, for sure.
0: Awesome. Um, speaking of Grixis, uh, we've got a... This was a card that Nathan Jones brought up on uh, the episode we did together. Um, is another legendary card. This one does not have partner. Um, Obeka Brute Chronologists... Uh, it is one colorless, a blue, a black and a red, legendary ogre wizard uh, the art has some strong punk pop or punk rock <laughs> vibes to it which I'm <laughs> super into uh, but she is a 3-4 and she has an activated ability, you tap her and the player whose turn it is may end the turn and so what that means is this is like a sundial of the infinite sort of scenario the, I got the card name right, all right, I'm not thinking yeah, of it's... a different card okay mm-hmm. um you exile all spells and abilities from the stack the player whose turn it is discards down to hand size damage wears off and this turn and until end of turn effects end oh there's so much with this card it's such a goofy card um so Cobblepot with this list um what are some of the things that people are really kind of looking at to build around this cuz there's there's something here right
1: Oh yeah absolutely so so i mean the the, the core thing that you're 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 going to do is um the, the same sorts of things that you could do if you had sun sundial of the infinite in your command zone basically is uh you want to use the really really cheap red extra turn spells that have um, negative consequences, you know, if you get <laughs> to the end of a turn, um, being able to just shut off those consequences. And uh, basically, the way that you kind of uh, work that out in perpetuity is by using Underworld Breach or by using Isochron Scepter. So, with, with Isochron Scepter, uh, Final Fortune is the only one of those that's an instant, but you can, you can put that on Isochron Scepter and say, I'm going to take another turn. And then, when that extra turn comes around, you still have your ice Cream scepter to be able to do it again for the next turn, and you right. just end the turn before you get the lose the game clause. Um, the same thing will work with underworld breach, in that instead of using a <laughs> scepter to re- to to replay that again and again, um, you just keep your underworld breach in play because you just move to the next turn, and uh, you at the end of turn you don't lose the game and you don't have to sacrifice the breach. So you're able to kind of continue that. As as long as you're able to, you know, continue to put cards into your graveyard, um, you'll be able to continue casting those spells again and again and again. So uh, you're you're doing Grixis things. I mean, people want to be on, you know, they want to be on breach lines in the first place anyway. Um, you're, you're probably still going to be playing, you know, Adnaws, you're going to be doing the things you expect to do in Grixis. It's just got some different... Uh, different kind of characteristics to it that you you, you don't normally see with kind of the final fortune sort of, you know, the the suicide extra turn spells. Um, But another dimension here too, this is the first time that you've had a Sundial ability that you're able to activate outside of your own turn. That's the the, the main condition that you see on Sundial Mm -hmm. is that you can only activate that on your turn. Um, This is... A, a very permissive and political ability to, I, I think, reduce the, uh, the strength of opposing naws, because, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of debt, a, a lot of NAS decks that want to posture themselves to be able to do a main phase naws profitably, but still, I mean, prevailing wisdom is your best naws is going to be at the end step of your, your last opponent. And, uh, with Obeka in play as long as it's somebody else's turn um, you can you know, collaborate with somebody else to say would you like to end your turn now so that this NOS gets exiled and goes away and uh, that's, all, that's going to be a, uh, a powerful deterrent for people trying to do end phase Nazes. Right. so that's going to be a significant impact in games where ad NOS is proliferant
0: this is also a viable way, um, to you know, if somebody flashes in opposition agent um, in response to a tutor, uh, you can just nope activate this and yes nobody and, tutors and,
1: right and in what's important here is that the you know the spells are are, are exiled from the stack right. which means mm-hmm. that you know while while the card is is a spell you know it it is. Subject to that as well. So in that particular case, the opposition agent is exiled and mm-hmm. not able to be retrieved. And um, that is a, a strong deterrent from people trying to keep you off of your tutors. So as long as you're doing your tur- your tutors on your turn.
0: <laughs> Man, where was this when Flash was around? This would have been great against Flash. Please do not unban Flash on account no, of No, please this. don't. <laughs> but... Um, so we got that, and then um, Pongo. I know. So when Battle Bond came out, right? They did these Bond Lands, as they're called, and uh, they did, I believe it was the enemy Bond Lands. Um, now they're <coughs> doing. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, now they're doing the enemy Bond Lands. It was the, the Allied ones, Bond it Lands was allied originally. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now they're doing the enemy Bond Lands. So we've got training center. I don't know what all the names are. Um, so what does this really open up for mana bases? Um,
2: so one thing that's important to consider is, you know, mana bases and CEDH are absurdly good. You know, they've always been essentially perfect, um, particularly in like three, four, five color decks. Um, so for a lot of the top decks in the format, this is going to be kind of an incremental sort of upgrade. Um, you know, one thing that does stand out to me is the fact that, um, if you're playing sort of like some of the, like the turbo NOS type strategies, you now have, uh, you know, more pain-free lands, which is always nice to have. Um, right. you know, ultimately you still want to be playing a certain number of fetchable lands, whether it's original duels or shocks, um, because obviously fetch lands are still the, the best lands in the game. Right. Um, you know, I personally, in Gila I'm considering playing the green-blue uh, land uh, over uh, Waterlogged Grove, um, because I don't remember the last time I actually drew a card with my Waterlogged Grove, but I am playing Adnaz in that deck, so if I can save, like, 2-3 life, that could theoretically be relevant. Um, you know, it seems like it would be relevant more often than like I said the zero times in recent memory that I've drawn a card Um, so again very incremental sort of upgrade Uh, looking beyond that you know this is really nice to have for lower color decks Um, you know having another blue red land for uh, blue red decks and you know blue green decks uh, having an extra blue green land is is super nice Um, those are the decks where you know you don't necessarily have the most stringent mana requirements but having perfect mana and even better mana is is, is pretty nice. Um so I, I do see these seeing a ton of play. Um, you know, notably these also make it a little bit easier to play uh, you know, low color Hermit Druid mana bases, right. low color tainted packed mana bases. I think that might be the most significant uh benefit that these bring to the format. Right. Um you know, I I think that there's a strong pull to be playing more colors if you're playing those types of strategies, but you know, it's, it's always nice to see um, that they're going to become more viable.
1: Right. Then they'll, we'll, we'll have the snow covered bond lands, which will make it even easier to run. Right. Tainted packed (laughs) mana base.
2: Yeah. You know, new, new lands, like they're always cool but we're getting to the point of like critical mass of good lands where uh they're they're not necessarily the most exciting thing anymore. Um unless of course, you know, they happen to be like spells on one side, that's that's kind of cool. Um right. oh, that's a different I story. I love those cards so much.
0: <laughs> I, I I deeply love those cards so much. Those made Lavinia so much better. I mean, because now it's just like you get into a lock and you're just like, "Hey, I have this thing that will be under there sometimes and it wins me the game um and for the 99 percent that it's not under there it is a land and it's just it's great mm-hmm. um mm-hmm.
2: i think um, uh yeah oh, go ahead, sorry i was just gonna say i think another thing that i particularly like about these lands that again i would be rem- remiss not to mention is these help a lot with the uh, budget mana bases and yeah, that is sure. probably my favorite part about these lands right
1: I mean, um, they they help with budget mana bases for now. Um, if the original Bondlands are any indication, their prices right. are are only going to go up. So, um, for the now, they're they're very accessible and attainable. And the good
0: um, news is, is if you listened to my episode um, with Dan Schmidt a couple episodes ago, where we were talking about the LGS, uh, we touched on why Commander Legends got pushed back. And it was specifically to avoid the Jumpstart Battle Bond issue of the demand was much higher than the amount of product that was out there. Um, so hopefully we can avoid that. But I know with Battlebond and Jumpstart, there was this huge demand for this product. And there were like, I, I made a joke on there, I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's more boxes of uh, Portal Three Kingdoms floating around there than there are of Jumpstart right now. Right, in English
2: yeah Yeah. i'm still not convinced that jumpstart even exists to be quite honest with you
0: i've never seen a real
1: life jumpstart box or pack ever
0: yeah so i have seen them and went oh i I don't need to buy any packs i'll just buy the singles and then i looked at the price of like Owlosaurus shepherd and a meal and i was like okay maybe i'm not (laughs) so um so as we look on uh we're 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 not talking about a land this time. We're not talking about a legendary, although we will get back to that. Um, we've got some a very interesting card. Um, we've talked a lot about wheels in uh, this episode. Well, I think in the last episode, but in this episode, this two-parter. Um, so we all know of Wheel of Fortune. Um, we've we've got the what I'm convinced was meant to be an uncard. And somebody said, ah, just put it in Black Border. Um, It's Wheel of of Misfortune. Um, It's a sorcery for two colorless and a red. Each player secretly chooses a number that's zero or greater. Then all players reveal those numbers simultaneously and determine the highest and lowest numbers revealed this way. Wheel of Misfortune deals damage equal to the highest number to each player who chose that number. Each player who didn't choose the lowest number discards their hand then draws seven cards. So that was a lot. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry I just read the Lord of the Rings to you guys on this magic card. Um, So this is obviously a pretty complicated magic card. Um, As a judge, this card is a nightmare um because of the everybody secretly chooses a number and then you all reveal them at the same time this is if i was running a tournament and this this card shows up i would hate every judge call that was made that day because it was always going to it was going to it will end up being the same person who's playing this card and i'm going to roll my eyes every time because somebody's it's going to be all, i don't think this person actually picked that number um but pongo just just break this card down for me oh you you had to pick me <laughs> 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 um
2: i mean listen so i'm going to preface this by saying i'm not john nash um you know i'm i'm not an economist or a mathematician and and this card for quite frankly you know we're we're getting to uh a level of complexity or intrigue where you know it, it might you might benefit by having some familiarity with uh, you know game <laughs> theory uh, uh, and and some of those ideas. Um, so on the surface, this is a card that is essentially you know quite similar to Wheel of Fortune, um, and it also bears a striking or a passing similarity to like Punisher type effects, mm-hmm. which if you're not familiar with them. Are uh, cards like temporal extortion which basically give your opponent a choice of punishments and one of them is either you know some kind of beneficial spell effect so in the case of temporal extortion they take an extra turn or you know you can pick your poison and you can choose to lose I think it's like ten life instead or five or ten life I think ten. so in 1v1 if you were to play this card it would actually probably play out somewhat similarly to that where if your opponent does not want you to wheel, they just have to pick some kind of high life total, um, and they'll they'll win, right? Um, most likely, you're not going to want to wheel and spend more than 10 life to prevent the wheel from happening, mm-hmm. um, or, or to, to guarantee you get your wheel. But in multiplayer, this becomes substantially more complex, um, <laughs> because we run into this question of, well, first of all, it's only the person who has the lowest number who doesn't wheel and who doesn't lose life. Um <clears throat> clarification,
1: the ho- only the person who picked the highest number loses life. Only, else. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah, everyone else is, who's in the middle will wheel but not lose life. Right. And
0: if multiple people pick the same number and it's the highest number, they all lose the life. Right, that's right. why they had to word it that way.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you have like... In multiplayer, kind of like two axes of potential punishment um, and also, you know, potential choices to make. You know, do you want a wheel? And if so, you know, how much life are you willing to spend to sort of like, you know, make sure that you're wheeling um, and that you're not going to be the person who pays the least amount of life? Uh, alternatively, is there any way to collude to make sure that, you know, the person who needs the wheel the most doesn't get their wheel um you know in theory you can imagine somebody dumps their entire hand uh, on turn one uh you know before anyone else has managed to play the game uh and then puts wheel of misfortune on the stack and you know has every intention of wheeling but you know his three opponents are like well we just like you know mulligan to these seven card hands we don't want to have our hands disrupted we don't want to wheel right now because you know maybe you have the nuts Uh, We talk about it amongst ourselves, and we say, okay, well, we're all going to pay 25 life, right? Um, And the person who wants to wheel, you know, maybe they're playing an Adnos deck, and the the prospect of paying 25 life or 26 life or whatever to guarantee get their wheel uh, is not super, super appealing. You know, they don't want to be the person who paid the lowest. So there's that aspect, and again, I don't want to get into that too, too much. I don't know that that's going to be a reasonable scenario in a lot of cases um but beyond that even in that discussion you're gonna run into this issue um where you know even if everyone colludes and says oh yeah let's all pay 25 life there's someone who wants to pay 24 life and there's someone who wants to pay you know choose to 23 and and not actually pay the life right you know you you always have this like desire to not actually cooperate with everybody and all lose the life together so you're constantly getting pushed downward to make sure that you're not actually going to be the person with the highest, even if you've all colluded and agreed to name a number higher than the number that the person who's choosing to wheel or who really, really wants the wheel um, is going to name, presumably. So, you know, the it, it kind of boggles the mind when you think about potential counterplay to this card, um, you know, the potential for people not wanting to wheel, Uh, As well as the potential for people not wanting to lose life, Uh, you know, there's all these sort of permutations of possibilities that occur in Actuality what I (laughs) expect to see happen is people are not gonna pay that that much life It's gonna be a wheel of fortune and maybe you wheel a fortune and lose five life or something Mm -hmm. like I think that's probably the most common play pattern that being said um, it's not strictly wheel because you know you will occasionally run into these situations where People will discuss, what are we doing now? And things will get messy. Right.
0: right. Now, one, one, one thing with this card that I do think is interesting, because on the collusion point, in a casual game of EDH that will definitely, um, even a casually competitive game of EDH, that's certainly something that will come about. Um, when you start to delve into, because I run a lot of sanctioned CEDH events in, uh, at my LGS... Um, if there was a situation like this that you're describing, right, um, where everybody decides we're going to choose 25, um, the player who's casting that Wheel of Fortune can very rightfully call a judge and get you on some form of cheating for misresolving the spell uh, because it does require the table to resolve the spell. Um, and that is on the on the onus of everybody at the table to correctly resolve the spell, um, and if they're knowingly mis-resolving the spell, um, that would be a
2: problem. Well, um, so what you're saying maybe applies as the spell is resolving, but I think you can have this discussion with the spell still on the stack.
1: Right. my My understanding right. was that you can you can declare to people. What you intend,
2: right? Mm -hmm. And
1: then go back on what your declaration was Mm
2: -hmm.
0: with
1: whatever it is you wrote on a piece of paper upside down or something. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And 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 that's and I bring that up specifically for that point um, where in I do think the order of how you would approach that matters, um, because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where if you are at let's say you're at Oktoberfest or something like that, right? And you're playing in that event you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you get a judge call on you for, you know, cheating. Um, So that is, and that was my immediately thought when I saw this was um, some red flags with the possibility of cheating on it. Um, And maybe that's just because I've run a lot of events and had to, you know, give players warnings and things of that nature um, that I'm a little cautious with this sort of, uh, game design, um, but it is it is certainly something that if you're going to do exactly what Pongo is saying, and in you know the way that you're describing it is before the resolution of the spell, I think that's reasonable, and I don't think that many judges would say much about it. If it's as the spell is resolving, uh, that would be a problem. Right. I'm
2: I'm just gonna. I guess, conclude and then let gobble, take it away from here. But my, my last thought on this card is that it's the most intriguing card design I've seen, I think, since the Gitrog monster. Hmm.
1: I, I, I would concur that it's definitely an interesting card. I mean, it's a very confusing card. Um, <laughs> I. It, it makes me think of a silver-bordered card called Ambiguity that has yeah. to do with um, spells that have counters and spells that counter. and. It does different things, but where you have to read it a couple of times because it's like, wait a minute. So, so, so wait, who, who, who actually draws and you have to like go back and read it again, even though you've read it once. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't, I, I, hear all the things that you're saying about, you know, the game theory that goes on there. And, um, what I, what I think is, especially in CEDH, you've got a lot of people who, Are devoting a lot of resources to sculpting a hand into a very specific you know uh shape that they want for being able to to combo out and historically wheel effects have been extremely disruptive to people you know absolutely off of their mulligans but i mean a couple of turns into the game having a wheel can be hugely disruptive to the player who's you know got their their win apparatus in hand and they're just waiting for their turn um mm. you know oh man i would have won if you hadn't have done that wheel whatever um <laughs> i i think what's going to happen is a lot of the time there's going to be at least one person at the table that does not want to participate and is going to pick zero because they right. want to keep their hand and right. when that happens it it really doesn't matter what number you pick It means you're, you know, if you're picking something non-zero, chances are you're going to be able to participate in that wheel. So the people who want to opt out have a sure thing. If they pick zero, they know that they're not part of the wheel. And um, I I think that that's kind of going to be like the unspoken way that people do it. And if if there is kind of game theory that takes place, it's going to be people choosing one or whatever to somehow, you know, I, I I don't know if people are going to 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 look at it from the point of view of, okay, this person, you know, has has spent all of their resources, they've got no cards in hand, and now they're gonna refill. We don't want them to do that. Rather than say, I'm gonna pick uh, twenty five life so that they don't get to draw, um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna cast Swan Song and counter the spell and now they don't get to draw. I I think like that is the way people are going to resolve it more often than within the confines of kind of the little sub game that's happening in the card.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I agree.
1: It's, it's, I mean, we, it remains to be seen, you know, whether it sees play and what happens when it does see play, because we haven't played with the card yet. But um, I, 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 I think it's, it's a really thought provoking design but I, I don't know if in real life it's, it's going to be as interesting as we would hope it would be.
0: I just don't want to have to deal with this as a judge. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really all it comes down to for me is I saw this card and I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, was r- definitely I,
1: – and I mean I, I don't know if they could have worded it more clearly – I think they could have designed it more clearly so the wording would have been able to follow more concisely.
0: I think what would have made it more easy to resolve and maybe a little bit more flavorful is each person rolls a six-sided dice. Whoever rolls the lowest um, keeps their hand and whoever doesn't um, or whoever the highest one is, right? And then you kind of get some randomness to it, which I think is kind of the part that it, it feels like it's trying to go for, right? Like it's a clearly in the art, like it's Rakdos. Now I'm kind of talking about like, you know, all of this the flavor, flavor. Right. Yeah. Um, right. But even then I feel like that is easier to resolve than, all right, everybody get a piece of paper, write down your number, and then we'll all flip them over at the same time. All right, go. Um, that just feels like this. Just feels like a kitchen table card to me, which is why I feel like it should be silver bordered. It does feel I, very silver bordered. When I say this card, I think was an end card that they just went ah, make it black. I, I it was in black border, yeah, like yeah, just do it. Although I don't know that I agree with that.
2: Um, I I understand that yes, like because of the mechanical complexity, this could have been a silver border card recently. Um, And it certainly feels like it may have originally been designed like that. But I also see this card as... And and, and the reason why I think they would not have designed it with that randomness aspect that you're discussing is because I think that this is kind of part of a sustained effort on the part of Wizards of the Coast to kind of skirt the reserve list and print cards that, you know, in gameplay situations play similarly to cards on the reserve list without
0: actually violating the spirit of the reserve list no that makes sense and i that's certainly true I don't know it's just between the name and the the secret part of it um, it just to me the first thing I saw was I was like this feels like it should be silver bordered um, but no I think you're totally right um, it's just so- an incredibly complex card and
2: you know incredibly complex and this is like coming from after a time where wizards you know was kind of like trying to reduce complexity for some time (laughs) and it seems it seems that wizards has like not just doubled down not just tripled down but like literally quadrupled down on complexity with this card because this is more complex than the most egregiously complex cards from the time where they were saying, okay, we need to chill with the complexity.
1: Right. This feels like something that would have been printed in the time of Legends, where they've got, like, you know, like the Bible printed on the card because <laughs> there's, like, so much stuff going on. It's like, well, you really could have just done this this other way and made it much more concise and
0: much Well, much I mean, the card that immediately comes to mind, I was about to say this before you even said Legends, is I was about to say I feel like this is harder to understand than the original wording on limb duels right or chains of mephistopheles or animate dead like this is just like and it's not worded poorly it's worded exactly the way it should be and very like it's it may it's hard to understand because there's a lot of layers to it right right but it's worded correctly so that it makes sense once you kind of get through all the layers
1: and that was the point that i was trying to make where they've worded it the best they could per the design of what is happening on the card and I think that they probably could have made the design itself more streamlined so that the wording could have been more clear but yeah I, it is I what have it is. A,
2: an alternate wording for it that I think would work um, each player secretly explains how banding works then all <laughs> players reveal their explanation of how banding works simultaneously uh, then, and then the players vote the on who did the best worst. job and then <laughs> the person who did the best job, wins the Doesn't. game <laughs> yeah
0: you know and that could have been an interesting you know you bring up the vote mechanic that could have been an interesting thing to bring into this is like the council's what was that mechanic that they oh, had yeah. from <laughs> will, could of the council. Done, will of the council yeah you could have done something where you know everybody votes for one side or the damage side and it might have brought it down a lot, but it might have added some more. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of things they could have done that didn't include secretly choosing a number. I really just bent out of shape over the secret part. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, moving, anyway on. moving on. Um, uh, so we're going back to the legendary creatures. And um, we've got a card that doesn't feel like its colors, um, but is very, very good is Arkelos, did i say that right? Arkelos. I I, Arkellos. I would say Arkelos. Okay. Arkelos Lagoon Mystic. Um he is 4 CMC, he's a colorless black green and blue. He's soul tie a 2/4 turtle shaman, that's legendary. And um he is effectively a amulet of vigor. As long as Arkelos is tapped, other permanents enter the battlefield tapped. As long as Archelos is untapped, other permanents enter the battlefield untapped. Um, so Cobblepot, you've kind of talked about this de- uh, card a lot on Twitter um, in a lot of different varieties, uh, but you kind of see this as a stacks commander, right? R- right, and um,
1: so what I would clarify here is that when he's on un- when he's untapped, it it's it's a similar effect. To amulet of vigor, but it's a very different effect. So amulet of vigor is is a trigger. Mm -hmm. So if something would enter the battlefield, if something enters the battlefield tapped, then it triggers and causes an untap. And the reason why that's important is that when you have abilities like Yaruk, or um, you know Panharmonicon or whatever uh, that observe uh, permanents entering the battlefield and then make copies of triggers. That's a way that you can exploit Amulet of Vigor. So you have circumstances like under Yarek where you've got Amulet of Vigor. Um, you get to untap things twice. So if you have a Gaius Cradle come into play tapped, then you get to untap it twice and actually you know, double the output of the, the, the cradle. In this particular case, um, it, it, it's a replacement effect. So the, the, the permanent that would be entering the battlefield tapped comes into play untapped instead. So it can't that I that surface of exploitation doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. still a very powerful effect for dealing with uh permanents that cause things to, you know, that permanents that would otherwise come into play uh, tapped, like, you know, bounce lands, um or abilities that put things into play tapped, like scapeshift mm-hmm. or uh, Splendid Reclamation or whatever. So there are game plans where people are looking to use his untapped side, basically, to exploit those types of effects so that they can um, make something like a scapeshift that's intended to be kind of mana neutral and have mm-hmm. everything you know come into play tapped uh, make them very mana positive instead. So that would be one half of the game plan that's taking place. The other half is he basically becomes an orb of dreams when he's tapped, which means that... And he, he's, he's you know kind of like a world enchantment here. He, he impacts the permanents that come into play for all players, not just yourself. So um, the idea here is you are using your own combat step or your own you know, earthcraft or whatever means that you have of getting him tapped to break parity with his presence on the board. So on your turn, he untaps, and anything that you want to do, you know, all of your permanents will enter the battlefield untapped. And then before passing turn to your opponents, you find some means of tapping him, either through attacking or using earthcraft or some other effect. And then all of your opponents are under an orb of dreams, which is extremely taxing, for fetch lands and for, you know, dockside extortionist and for, you know, everything that you want. It's an incredible uh, tempo reduction to have everything come into play tapped. Um, And then the the expectation is that people would exploit it with static orb, winter orb, those sorts of effects. Um, Currently, you don't see a lot of winter orb. You don't see a lot of static orb. You don't see a lot Mm -hmm. of blood moon. And, And the reason for that is because Doxide Extortionist just rolls right through those effects. Mm-hmm. Um, not having your, you know, being able to only untap one land isn't that much of a problem if you only need two lands to get Doxide into play and then be able to generate infinite mana over the top of whatever stacks effects are there. The fact that this guy allows you to tap down lands that are coming into play and nullify the treasures that are coming into play from the Doxide makes static orb abilities much much stronger than they are currently and i mean to the point of, of of making them potentially viable but he's you know a four mana commander in three colors so he's not coming down turn one or turn two anytime soon um so whether he's fast enough to be able to exert that power I think remains to be seen and I would probably be pessimistic as to whether he's going to be a dominant force in the metagame
0: yeah um I kind of I kind of agree with you on that um although I do think there is some design space with it um personally I think the design space is going to be from a from a CDH perspective I I really think you're going to end up seeing those like scapeshift um sort of decks be the way to go um as like a combo deck that has a way to slow down your opponents um i could see this as a reason to play like if you were doing something like that what was the card we were talking about earlier um spring leaf drum is a very good way of leveraging him right our it against uh, your opponents and, you know, kind of working for you. Um, so, I mean, there's there's, there's something there. I don't know if it's good or not, but um, there's certainly something worth exploring somewhat, in my opinion. He'd be a lot better in Ban.
2: Yeah, actually, I, I wouldn't mind jumping off from that point. Yeah. Um, I actually uh, sort of, like, came up with a preliminary brew for this deck uh, with Lurker and a few other people. Uh, because i think this guy is super cool like i love the flavor i love the ability um design wise i think it's a bit unfortunate that he doesn't have a triggered ability like uh, an amulet of vigor mm-hmm. because that would actually to me um make him feel like he has more business being in soul because then you know you could right. play him with yarok and you know you could do some really interesting things that way right i understand why they didn't do it um to me, I think the main reason why is it's because the tapped part of the ability um, is pretty awkward to do any other way other than as a replacement effect, as is currently templated. And then if one ability is a replacement effect and one ability is a triggered effect, triggered ability, it's not really a um, an elegant card design when you can just do it this way. Um, so I get why they did it this way. Um, and yeah, so I agree entirely that one of the bigger issues with this guy is that he is not in Bant colors. So what that means is that um, you don't necessarily have access to a lot of like the, the strongest stacks pieces um, right. that you know you would really want to be playing if your goal is to play a stacks deck. But you know another, let's say more pernicious downside to not being in Bant and instead being in Sultai is Like, there's this incredible centralizing force in Sultai of just playing Thassa's Oracle-based combos. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you kind of run into this issue while you're playing this guy of, you know, why am I not just winning with Thassa's Oracle Demonic Consultation? And if I'm doing that, why aren't I just playing a more proactive deck instead? Um, So he's kind of suffering from his own success in a way. Uh, You know, being in in very strong colors uh, that don't necessarily want to push you in the direction of exploiting his abilities.
0: What if we just all collectively rule zero him as a band commander? We fix him ourselves. There we go. Problem I'll solved. ask Sheldon. We'll see if we can do it. Yeah.
1: He'll so, say, uh, yeah, go for it. If
0: you have a rule zero, it's fine. <laughs> uh, so moving on, we got more legendary stuff uh, on the table. Um, this time uh so one of the things that i thought was really interesting with the set is all of the two mana leg- or the two color legendary cards are not partnered and uh, that felt like it was a very deliberate choice to push partners into a monocolored um sort of design area uh, but one of the two colored commanders uh, coming out of the set is Aryumi of the dead tide um, it is a colorless blue and a black Legendary Merfolk Wizard. So, uh, you know, Brian from Talarian Academy should be very happy about that. Um, it's a 1 4, and you can tap it, exile cards from your graveyard equal to the number of opponents you have. Target creature, and that's part of the cost. Target creature card in your graveyard gains Encore until end of turn, and the Encore cost is equal to its mana cost. And so, th- for those of you who don't know what Encore is, Uh, is you exile the creature card uh, from your graveyard and pay its mana cost. Um, For each opponent, create a token copy that attacks that opponent this turn, if able. They gain haste, sacrifice them at the beginning of the next end step. Activate only as a sorcery. So you can only do Encore as a sorcery. Um, So, you know, I, I know... Uh, Cobblepot, you, you, you. This was another card you talked about on Twitter too. Um, what are some of the things people are looking to do with this?
1: Um, I, I don't know if anyone's really doubled down on on trying to find a place for this to have a home, either as the commander or in the ninety nine. It's it's just the the fact that <clears throat> there there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of value plays that you can make with this, and a couple of powerful Uh, game-winning plays that you can make depending on on the the, the game state that you're in. Encore is an activated ability, so it's not a cast spell, which means that it's got a a low surface area of interaction. So um, unless someone has a stifle, you're not going to be able to disrupt an encored uh, ability, which means that if you're able to either through a hermit druid or some other means uh, mill yourself out, and you've got Tassa's Oracle in your graveyard, you can give it Encore and pay two blue. And, um, without, you know, in an uncounterable way, uh, you can get three oracles onto the battlefield, uh, with their, that, that will then all see each other. So you'll, you'll have, uh, uh, six blue pips at (laughs) least on the, on the battlefield, um, if that's relevant. Um, I mean, of course, people can still interact with you by exiling, you know, cards with Deathrite Shaman or whatever. But um, in addition to that specific uh, line, you, you've you've got things like Dockside Extortionist. So you get three Dockside's for, you know, two red mana or um, Spellseeker for three mana getting three spells to your hand at, you know... Uh, there's there's a lot of 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 interesting value plays are they something that is going to become an archetype maybe i mean you 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 see kess kess kind of has you know a a similar style to this where it it is accruing you know additional advantage through being able to repeatedly make use of things that's it got in its yard this is sort of doing that but it's only it's doing it for creatures and it's doing them three at a time instead of one at a time Mm. um whether that's something that will prove good enough is i I think that remains to be seen but um it's it's something that everything that you have in, in in cedh uh a lot of things that are currently cedh viable were at one point not cedh viable um they were they were rooted in things where people tried something that hadn't been done before or tried something that people maybe you know, scoffed at, and wound up revealing something that could take root. So this this seems to me like one of those cards that uh, maybe it doesn't have everything it needs yet, but maybe eventually will be something around which we can build something to that would be viable in the metagame. Um, people just need to play with it.
0: And one of the things that kind of jumped out in my mind. Uh, for it was this actually feels like a card that would have a home in like a Kess twin list Um, because that's a deck that's already kind of leveraging um, you know sort of these graveyard abilities or something along those lines Um, and if somebody had you know dealt with your Pestermite uh, this might be a good way to bring it back Um, because you have a token of it you can put a twin on it you can kiki jiki it you can can you twi- kiki jiki it actually i might be wrong um um kiki jiki can only right kiki jiki can only target non-legendary well i'm talking about like the pester i couldn't remember if it could do non-token um yes it can... was a, okay
1: um and and so that... tokens tokens are one of the ways that you can get use kiki jiki to make copies of lands
0: right so um so, I mean, that that to me is the initial thing that I feel like that would be, if I were to immediately think of a place to put it, that would be the place. Because that is a creature combo list that runs out of the graveyard. Uh, that feels like that would be where that fits to me. It's possible. I, I It would, I mean,
1: obviously be some sort of a, of a deck that has vested interest in playing out of the yard. And I, th- I think a hermit druid list is, is probably something that probably doesn't need this, but could also, this could be, if, if you have some way of maybe, you know, you um, brain freeze yourself and reveal that you've got a hermit druid in your yard, then, and you've got Aruumi, you can then encore the hermit druids into play, and they'll have haste, and then you can use them to, you know, mill yourself the rest of the way, and then encore your your oracle into play or something like that. There's, oh, I mean, sorry, go ahead. It remains to be seen whether anything that's actually viable will materialize. It's just it's something that has potential, given the right support. Does it have right. the right support? We don't know, but it's worth taking a look.
0: Well, and part of the problem with it, I think, is the fact that you know in those you brought up with with uh, Hermit Druid it's, there's just so many better ways to just bring back a Hermit Druid after or a Thassa's Oracle after you Hermit Druid away right? Like sure. there's so much easier ways of doing it where this one it, that are that don't require mana too you know where you can just you know uh, what's the card I'm thinking of that I can't... Dread Return? Word? Yeah Dread Return it back um, this requires you know Two mana, uh, which isn't a lot, but it can matter. So, you know, the difference. The difference. uh, The
1: I clarified about Encore because mm -hmm. it's not a spell. Um, Dread Return is absolutely a spell that can be countered, um, whereas Encore cannot, and that's why I was I was articulating that as as a nuance that's important because for that particular line, that Mm -hmm. could wind up being a more resilient line of play.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, So, you know, I brought up Kiki-Jiki and Kes Twin. And Kes Twin, by the way, is one of my favorite CDH decks. I know it's now moved off of the competitive list. I still love it. I like all of the, like, (laughs) fringe, older CDH decks that people are like, ah, that's not any good. And I'm just like, I still like it. Um, But we've got a new piece to go with uh, Kiki-Jiki, and that's Port Razor. Um, Finally, not another... um, legendary creature that we've been talking about. Uh, It's three colorless and two red. Uh, It's a creature orc pirate. So this would be one of the things that go along with Malcolm. Uh, Whenever Port Razor deals combat damage to a player, untap each creature you control after this combat... Jesus. After this combat phase, there's an additional combat phase. Port Razor can't attack a player. It has already attacked this turn. It's also a 4-4. Um, So, you know, Pongo, with this card, obviously, we kind of immediately think Kiki-Jiki.
2: Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's just about it. Um, I'm not familiar with any other discussion people have had surrounding this card for any other contexts. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, you know, it's another Kiki-Jiki bottom, um, which is to say that, uh, you know, it's a secondary combo piece with Kiki-Jiki. Uh, Notably, it seems considerably worse than a lot of the other options that we uh, Already have access to so I don't know that this will actually see really much play at all outside of perhaps like mono red um, Or like, you know, theoretically uh, low color red decks that want to play kiki-jiki Because you know this this does have to deal combat damage to a player for it to work so Mm -hmm. notably you know, unlike other geeky giki combo pieces where you can just make infinite attackers and then move to combat, um, this isn't actually getting there uh, unless you're able to connect.
0: Right.
1: I I wonder about this in Winota, mm. which triggers off of non-humans attacking. And um, if you are able to get additional combat phases, then... Um, just from the attack triggers, from the the commander in that particular case, there's a lot of advantage that can be accessed. So it's expensive. Most of the time, you're not gonna. You, this is not a goblin, so there's not a great way to cheat this into play. Right. Um,
2: and it's not a human, so right. There's a, you're not putting it into play off of Winota. Right. Right. If if you could, way different story, and I would like. I think I would be pretty intrigued to see this in Winota as is i hadn't actually considered that and you know maybe there is something there because the extra combat phases as you pointed out are you know really really strong when you're essentially you know drawing cards and getting mana uh, if you uh, look at winota's ability in that that context um but this would be nutty if like you just could put it directly into play off of a winota flip um and could also then start taking extra combat steps with it, because right. notably it's not an attack trigger, it's a combat damage trigger.
0: Right. I think they very intentionally made it not a human. That's, <laughs> I, you know,
2: for- I wouldn't put it past them. Looking,
0: I mean, mistake. seriously,
1: looking, looking at the other designs, looking at opposition agent, okay, looking at, enough. you know, I, I mean, come on, make it, make it a human, make it a white human. <laughs>
0: With the most red ability (laughs) Um, Continuing down the red uh, trail, (laughs) we've talked a lot about red cards in this video, um, and that's because the red cards in this set are really, really good. Um, One of them, we're back to partners, is Kedis Emberclaw Familiar. Uh, It is a colorless and a red, 1-1. Legendary Elemental Wizard. Uh, that has partner. Whenever a commander you control deals combat damage to an opponent, it deals that much damage to each other opponent. Um, so again, I kind of throw this one at Pongo. You know what is the 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 natural thing that people are really thinking of right away?
2: So I've seen people playing this as basically a uh, another sort of like Mardu uh, farm type deck and like i legitimately mean farm um as opposed to you know just like turbo naws or or you know like whatever people are calling farm these days um you know literally you have timna and you know you're playing sort of this attack you know perhaps even like small sacrificeable creatures game plan um and so you play Kedis for the color um red just to be in mardu as is typical Uh, And you might throw in, you know, just like the spicy inclusion of a card like hatred um, To like just get people (laughs) randomly, Um, you know, because if you can just like hatred people uh, You know with your life linking Timna, you can kind of just deal a massive chunk to everybody uh, Potentially even just take them all out like that. So, you know, it's kind of cute Um, Certainly an option. I think that, you know, like as a commander agnostic game plan That type of deck is quite strong. So, if you're just going to make, you know, like a couple of inclusions just to have this game plan and, you know, forego having one commander um, that, you know, could be theoretically something better, um, you know, that deck is still going to be totally fine.
1: Right. I I would just want to tack on that. I mean, I I could see running this as a partner to Timna without putting any other special cards in the list at all. And just using it as a template, tim, Timna Amplifier. Where if mm-hmm. your Timna is able to get through on anybody, you're gaining six life and drawing three cards. And right. um, those are those are exactly the things that a farm deck wants to do. It wants to draw right. cards and it wants to be mana manipo- or life positive as much as it can right. to get the most p- profit out of its you know gnaws and you know Necropotence if it's running that and 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 those kinds of things. So. Um, I, I I think that you know just having it in the command zone is good enough to 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 get great value out of that pairing.
0: And I think this kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where um, things like this kind of encourage variety in decks, um, where you can get you know everything's not all right. What are we pairing with? And all right, what are we pairing with Thrasios? Like we we kind of can get a little bit, like we're still doing that, but we're getting more creative with it now uh, because we have these other things that are interesting and have some good value to them on their own. Um, so, and in, in with this being a commander legend set, there's some cards that are really uh, wrapped around, they're color specific cards that are wrapped around uh, whether or not you control your commander or not. And uh, one of those cards, again a red card, is Jessica's Will. It's a two in a red sorcery um, that says choose one. If you control a commander as you cast the spell, you may choose both. So you can add red mana for each card in target opponent's hand and or exile the top three cards of your library. You may play them this turn. I was talking to Cobblepot about this card before we went on the stream, or went on to record, and this card to me feels like it's just gas. Like, I I really think this is really good, and you were talking about this as particularly really good in card lists,
1: right? Just, um, so most of the time, it especially with kind of this like proliferation of two mana partner red commanders or less you know even with Roger um, you're, you're you're almost always going to be getting both halves of this card so um, also a lot of times I mean in in most games of CEDH there's always at least somebody who's at seven cards in hand at, at most points in the game um, so for two mana you are getting a ritual that is better than um oh my goodness what's the there if there's a three mana instant that gives you five red mana
0: what the pyretic ritual
1: not pyretic ritual um anyway Uh, it's
2: seething song or seething song oh that's it yeah seething
1: song so this is it's it's better than seething song as far as how much mana it's generating and it's you know sort of drawing you three cards um in, in in the clerk lists, where, you know, you're, you've got the possibility of, you know, copying that or doubling up on it, or if you're, you know, having multiple Krarks, um getting the effect and then also having the card come back to your hand so you can do it again. In those particular cases, it's it's absolutely insane. Um, outside of of you know a degenerate kind of a clerk copying apparatus i i i think it's it's still a good card the the fact that it's exiling the cards and not putting them in your hand that is detrimental if you exile a wincon or something and you're not it's a very red ability though it's a very red ability um i think for the 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 lists that are willing to accept that liability will love this card and i think it'll see no play anywhere else
2: i'm not sure that i agree with that actually i think uh uh, i think this card may actually get taken up by a a good number of decks um that are sort of more on the turbo plan uh i mean in particular this is guaranteed auto play absurdly busted card in in rog in roger um where you always get the ritual and you always get the XL, the top three um you know generally as early as turn one or turn two um but additionally um this is surprising a lot of people who are trying it out uh where it ends up being like pretty strong as a ritual effect as we discussed but uh you know exiling those top three cards of your library um sure there is some risk inherent in that but i don't know that it's risk that's necessarily higher than the risk those decks are already willing to take playing cards Mm -hmm. like Tainted Pack, Demona Consultation, you know, uh, sort of non-deterministically sort of trying to go off with wheels and stuff like that. Uh, These are not decks for the risk of verse. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I think that uh, this deck, this, this card rather, um, while, while it's not going into literally every red deck. Uh, is gonna see play in a surprising amount of red decks than you might
0: originally think
1: well i'm i welcome it
0: yeah i love monocolored decks and if more of them are uh good i am very 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 much here for it um over on to yet another legend there are so uh, how many legends did they say are are in the set. It's like 70 some, right? Well, 71 Um, new partners. Yeah. That's just the partners. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of legends in, in, and to be fair, it's a draft set. So you got to have a lot of legends in order for, to draft a commander deck. Um, so, uh, one of the cards, uh, that Cobblepot has brought up and brought to our attention, uh, specifically in stuff around, uh, Tatiova, um, we know you do a lot of the kind of pioneering work around that uh list is kodama of the east tree and uh, kodama of the east tree is a four colorless two green legendary spirit that's a six six with partner which is wild um it has reach whenever another permanent enters the battlefield under your control if it wasn't put onto the battlefield with this ability you may put a permanent card with equal or lesser converted mana cost from your hand onto the battlefield. So, of course, the, uh, the madman himself uh, immediately had a, a thought bubble in his head and went, Oh, I got to do this with Tatiova. We can take advantage with lands. So, explain in some more detail exactly what we're talking with this card.
1: Right. So, the, the ability that triggers when permanents come into play the fact that it says equal or lesser is, is the most important part there. There's a lot of abilities that will restrict things to only be lesser because they don't want you to be able to chain long sequences of free value into play. Mm -hmm. This is a big thing with white where, you know, something happens to something of one cost and you can do that same thing to something of lesser cost. This is allowing you to do things of equal or lesser. So, Namely, if you have any ability that puts a land onto the battlefield, then you have an option to put another land directly into play. And the thing about Tatiova that makes this exploitable is that land entering the battlefield is going to also create a draw trigger. So when a land comes into play, you can then look at the top card, you know, draw a card. If it's a land, we'll put that one into play too, and then draw another card. hmm So um then a lot of times you have kind of this cap where if you if you don't have like Azusa or, you know, um some other effect that is allowing you to, to have multiple land, you know, extra land drops that uh you're, you're not really able to take huge advantage of Tachiova's static ability. The fact that, oh, maybe that thing that you drew, so so you, you put a land into play, and then you got another land, you put that land into play too, and then you got to draw a card. Now, um, maybe that card that you drew was another land, um, but you don't have any more land drops. Well, you can maybe tap one of those lands that you put into play to cast, and, you know, uh, Llanowar Elves, they come into play. Now you put that other land into play, and then draw another card. Right. And so, so what happens is it allows you to behave as if you have an uncapped number of land drops, presuming you're able to continually have kind of like one mana dorks that you're able to convert into additional lands mm-hmm. and uh, balance that solvency between you know the number of cards you have in hand and Um, The lands that you have on the battlefield. Um, And you're able to even exploit that further if you're running some of the hate pieces that are in blue that force people to return lands to their hands. So, if you're running uh, Overburden, which is, (laughs) you know, uh, a two-mana enchantment that says whenever a creature enters the battlefield, its controller returns a land to their hand. I mean, you play a mana dork, and then you get those two triggers, you... You know, return the land to your hand, put it right back down onto the battlefield, and then draw a card. Uh, so there, there's a huge number of ways that you can uh, kind of exploit what's happening there. Now, this is a six mana permanent, so it's expensive, but Tatiova lists are very able to generate huge amounts of mana. So um, it's it's certainly not outside the realm of. Uh, what is already happening in those tachyova lists. And I think that right. this is an inclusion that um, can be very explosive.
0: In right. um, moving to... I don't know if Pongo song. wanted to add on it. Oh, yeah, anything sorry. Like that.
2: Oh, no, I, I think that that covers it. That certainly hadn't considered
0: all of those possible options. Uh, I know on this last card, I know Pongo uh, has some thoughts specifically especially because you are kind of some of the, uh, the Bant uh, like godfather, right? With all the, the, what's the, what's the Derevi list that you've done? Um, is Livio Oathsworn Sentinel. Uh, that is a new partner commander with white, that is one colorless and a white. Legendary human knight, it's 2-2. Two, two. Uh, has an ability that is colorless and a white. Does not require it to tap. Choose another target creature. Its controller may exile it with an Aegis counter. Aegeus, yeah. Okay. Aegis counter on it. Uh, and then it has a second ability that is two colorless and a white. It requires to tap it return all exiled cards with Aegis counters on them to the battlefield under their owner's control. So you were kind of talking about doing this with Thrasios and kind of going doing some infinite mana things. Kind of explain the thought process with that. Uh, yeah, so
2: I think both Cobble and I have a special place in our heart for Derevi. Um, this is true. <laughs> we, we both go way, way back with Derevi. Uh, and have a special relationship with her and that deck. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the way I, I, I've, I've heard discussions surrounding this card, um, and I think it's a super intriguing card for a lot of reasons. I don't want to necessarily get into all of them, because I think that that could be a very long conversation in and of itself. Um, but essentially, this represents a new uh, option for Bant using Thrasios, um and theoretically you could even play this in kind of like a hate bearsy type of shell um so the idea here is you know thrasios is obviously your infinite mana outlet how are you getting infinite mana well livio actually can contribute to that in a meaningful way um what you do is you exile something like a great oak guardian or a village bell ringer uh then you use livio's other ability so you tap him and pay three to return your great oak guardian or village bell ringer to play um and ideally i mean for this to really really work you need to have mana dorks in play um that will generate enough mana so that you're going to net mana uh every time you're untapping so you need to make four mana with your dorks and you need to be able to make uh you know double white um so it's not the easiest thing in the world to do but it's certainly possible to do uh things like bloom tender certainly go a long way toward that things like Faber or welter certainly go a long way toward that um and obviously you can do other things to uh combo with uh, all of those cards great guardian and, and village bell ringer you know things that will um you know return them to your hand like a team or saber type type of situation um hate bears in particular are interesting because Livio lets you kind of selectively remove the hate pieces that might actually be preventing you from, from winning. Um, let's say, you know, you have like a creature that's a rule of law effect in play, like an Eidolon of Rhetoric. Um, you know, you just kind of temporarily put it into exile, um, you know, do your thing mm-hmm. and, and win from that position. So so there's some play even with those really powerful hate pieces. Um, and notably Livio lets you exile cards um, and because they have the counters on them, there's nothing that actually says that if Livio dies, those cards are gone forever. You can right. replay Livio and bring those cards back. So, you know, I, that was like a I said, very,
1: um, that was a very thoughtful way to design it. And I am mm-hmm. grateful to whoever it is that did that design because that um, lends some insight into the uh i would say the the floor cases of of this type of pattern right and how this is able to transcend some of those floor cases because of that
2: yeah um i think he's incredibly intriguing and he's one of those cards that kind of and i i mean i said i didn't want to get into this but i guess i'm getting into it a little bit (laughs) um (laughs) he he's a card that kind of makes me think of one of the tensions that exists in white as a color which is that white has this simultaneous identity of playing lots of little creatures but also having mid-rangey cards like board wipes and stuff like that and those two game plans are in like they have extreme tension with one another Um, but this is here we have a bear who lets you tuck everything away you know wipe the board and then you can start bringing it all back in so he kind of actually um, starts to address that tension that has, to me, existed for a very long time in White's part of the color pie. Um, so I, I think that the card is really, really cool. I wish that first ability only cost one white mana. I'm not Thank entirely you. sure why you have to pay two mana to exile your thing and then have to pay three mana later to bring it back. Um especially when it's a May ability, so you can't just use it as repeated removal on opponent's right. creatures. Um, How but much does Hellvault cost?
0: Too I think much.
2: <laughs> Hell vault I'd have to look that up, um, but I don't remember it being that much mana to actually use. Yeah, it's, it's one mana oh, to exile target creature you control. I,
1: I thought it was one mana.
2: One mana and tap. Um, ah, okay. But... but But still in, in either case, this is a white card, right? So it's not a, it's not an artifact that any color has access to. Um, this is kind of like white's thing is, is like flickering things, bouncing or not bouncing things, but, uh, you know, fast flickering them, even, um, exiling things. Uh, and hopefully this represents a direction that wizards is willing to go into to (laughs) expand white's part of the color pie uh, right. Because this also represents a way to um, you know, double up on enter the battlefield effects, which can in itself be a form of card advantage. Um, That's right. So this is an intriguing card. This, this is this a way you
1: can get your monarch back when somebody takes your monarch away from you.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think we were talking about that before, about how uh, monarch is also uh, one of those mechanics that I would love to see white having much more of because it's a it to me at least it's a very flavorful way to address uh sort of this issue of card advantage in mono right. white um Must but have. uh yeah I, I think livio is uh like i said uh super super interesting card um people have kind of glossed over him because he's not going to be busted in cdh that much right. is clear but he represents something really interesting for white um that i hope we kind of see explored uh in in perhaps a slightly more pushed way in the future
0: yeah
1: i think he's an incremental evolutionary step of what white can be and this th- this this isn't it but it's indicative of the, the the trajectory that they're maybe thinking in which case it might eventually become it
2: right So many cards this time around that, you know, if they were just one mana less here or there in white could actually be, you know, CEDH worthy and, uh, you know, very, very strong cards. Um, You know, unfortunately, going through this list, (laughs) I think this might be the only white card we actually discussed, Um, which just goes to show that, uh, you know, while the intention is there and a lot of the cards are certainly powerful the issue is that they
0: lack, I think,
2: the efficiency uh, to be relevant for CEDH in a lot of cases.
0: Well, well and you know, you know, we talked about white in the set, and we could honestly just do a whole video, the three of us talking about white and the problems with it and all that. But you know, I th- I said this before we went went on, is you know, I look at a card like Armored Skyhunter, um, which, if you're not familiar with that, is uh, three in a white creature. Uh, whenever it attacks, you look at the top six cards of your library, you put an enchantment card from on the battlefield. Um, and there's other parts to that. But it's effectively, it's very evocative of a card like uh, Collected Company. And it's clearly trying to pay, like, be in that same vein. The problem is, is a card like Collected Company does something immediately, right? You get your card and you put it onto the battlefield, your cards, the problem with this is it takes a turn cycle to do anything. Um, and that turn cycle is very important. And I mean, honestly, if this I was talking to Phoenix about this, if this card says whenever this enters the battlefield or attacks, I think we could start to talk about this card as being a worthy include in some things. Um, Give it Titan templating. Right. Hmm. Um but the problem is, is that because of the templating of this, it pulls very strongly the power level of this card way back, and it holds it back from being good. And we're we're this is a format where they're clearly not afraid to for, to print into commander stuff that is really powerful, right? Like they printed Opposition Agent, they printed Hallbreacher, they printed Jeweled Lotus. They're not afraid. But there's something there with their design mentality with white that is holding it back from being really, really good.
2: Yeah. I, I, Cobble, you looked like you wanted to say something.
1: I mean, I wanted to say something. I just don't know if anything good was going to come out. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I would love to see more things like Elish Norn or more things like... Um, sanctum prelate and you know you know or but what we seem to get is we get things that are something that's way in between those two extremes and it's something that's just very milquetoast and very um uh, non-impactful for what's happening on the board
0: i mean mean, or we or we end up with stuff like a chroma which is just you know so okay for for what
1: it's worth chroma is really powerful in battle cruiser or battle cruiser battle cruiser edh you know right. if, if everyone's playing slow kind of the mainline core EDh demographic, that mm-hmm. card is really good it but I mean, I mean it, even
0: there were still a portion of those people um, who were large in the casual edh you know battle cruiser type community who are going this is seven mana this is a lot of mana um, and and you know and I get what you're saying I think you're right but I also just we're talking about like stuff like triumphant reckoning that's like nine mana or you know soul of eternity that it's power and toughness are equal to your life total and it's seven mana that's terrible um you know, and, and the thing and, it, and it's so frustrating for me because honestly, every time I look at Armored Skyhunter, I get mad because it was it's so close to being good. It's so close to being good. And it's frustrating for me because I see them printing stuff like Uro. Uh that is right there. It's pushed, it's really good. I see them printing stuff like Hole Breacher, like uh um, Dockside extortion. Dockside. Mm-hmm. All these things. And then I see them just fumble on the one yard line with armored Sky hunter and they're they're right there and they they can't figure it out and that's just it's frustrating for me because I really I, I love white and to see it be kind of handicapped like this very intentionally is frustrating. I would agree.
2: Yeah I mean from my perspective I, I do agree. I would certainly um, like to see some stronger white cards however, At the same time, I'm okay with white not being like the best CEDH color or or never being like a particularly amazing CEDH Mm -hmm. color. Um, You know, this game is bigger than just CEDH. And I think that uh, occupying a part of the game that makes you, as you know, makes white as a color perhaps. Um, really strong in other formats but doesn't necessarily play to what um, is really strong or what what is sort of a need in competitive EDH Mm -hmm. um, to me is is okay you know that being said I still want more diversity in the format and I would love to see people feeling like okay I have a reason to play white Um, so so we certainly do need some stronger cards in white but from my perspective, I'm okay with it never being, you know, uh, like
0: core, like oh, perhaps yeah. like
2: Grixis or or Saltyar.
0: I I for me just mostly want it, and maybe I'm biased because you know I do a lot of work with Lavinia, so any new good white card I'm immediately jumping on. Um, but the 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 big thing for me that I see with it is, I I just want the the quality of both sides of my color in a deck like Lavinia to be good. You know what I mean? Because in Lavinia, realistically, it's a a blue deck, right? Um, That has a handful of white cards within it. Um, And that's very frustrating because there's certainly a merit to white and there is a need for white. And I think that it can service those things just so long as Wizards is willing to you know, push it just a little bit I, I don't need it listen I don't need it to be opposition agent good. I just need them to push it just a little bit give it a little push off the edge make it draneth magistrate good yeah that right. was re- yeah that was amazing it was amazing. Um, but I'll tell you what we've been recording for three hours. Um, we good. have covered a ton of ground and really talked about a lot of different things in, you know, CEDH and what we think might be coming. And honestly, I, first of all, thank you guys for joining me again. You know, I know we all love making this content. Uh, But again, I always want you to know, I appreciate you being down to do this with me. Um, But so, you know, do you guys have any final thoughts about Commander before we really, you know, jump off? Commander Legends, I should say.
1: I was gonna say Commander in General. Well,
0: I, I know I I <laughs> worded that strangely. Maybe yeah. Um, uh,
2: maybe another episode. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I I think that Commander Legends. Um, I I think it delivered what we expected. Um. Yeah. We we heard that there was going to be seventy one new partners, and I think a lot of people went whoa, uh that that's going to change the metagame, and. People, you know, kind of came back and said, well, you know, they're not gonna be C E D H. And people said, No, no, no. With with that many new partners, you're gonna you're gonna hit on a couple of them for sure. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a good number of new partners that are going to diversify the 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 lists that people are playing. And not just I mean, yes, we, we do see a number of new lists. That are going to be kind of, well, the good things that Grixis does just with these commanders, or the good things that Grixis does with those commanders, or the good things that Mardu does with these commanders, that kind of thing. Yes, that's a thing. But there's also some some new, you know, suicide final fortune stuff with o- Obeku or Ubeka or whatever, right. um, You know, and Clark, and you know, there, there's there's new 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 styles of of gameplay that are also being engendered in some of these cards. And I am excited to see the way that those things uh, change play and see how people get better about playing tutors because Opposition Agent exists and stuff like that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. I, I am looking forward to see the the, the changes that take place. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and from my end, uh, I, I echo everything Cobble just said. Um, additionally, I I'm legitimately impressed by this set. Um, you know, obviously going into it, there's some anxiety about, you know, what is the broken thing that wizards going to print that, you know, like ruins the format for us. Um, you know, I don't know that that actually happened. I think opposition agent is certainly going to warp the format. Uh, but it's a card that has counterplay and it's not really pushing us in directions that we already weren't being pushed in by, you know, a whole list of other reasons. Um, additionally... One of the things that seems that Wizards seems to have been able to do really, really well, and I commend them for this, is uh, what I call sort of like horizontal card designs, horizontal power level, which is, you know, they printed a bunch of new commanders that are very powerful, um, but they're not completely pushing out other options out of the format. Um, They're coexisting with commanders that have existed previously. They're not just doing, you know. They're they're not Corvold, where they're essentially saying, you know, forget playing any other Jund commander for a while, um, because this just does does everything that you want in Jund, uh, and it does it better. (laughs) Um, You know, just essentially lots of new ideas, lots of new decks that can be built. um, You know, and each of them has their own flavor.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm really excited to get brewing. I pre-ordered my box of Commander Legends, and I'm hoping I can buy more Commander Legends boxes. You have chosen them
1: wisely. <laughs> I think the, I EV, just, the EV for this set is bananas. unbelievable.
0: So Yeah, over $200 a box right now, but it'll this, go down. This yeah. set in uh, Double Masters, I, I bought five boxes of Double Masters off my one box of Double Masters. Wow. Yeah, I just... Uh, to be fair, I had an unbelievable box of double masters. So, it sounds um, like it. Yeah, but uh, but with that being said, we're super excited. We've got some fun commander uh, content uh, lined up for you guys as we the uh, wait for commander legends rolls nearer and the release comes up closer. So uh, we will be uh, coming at you next time. And uh, with that, I'm Callahan. I'm Cobble. and I'm Pongo. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.